Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is the Austrian National Anthem, a tune written by Franz Josef Haydn and employed in his string quartet nicknamed the Emperor Quartet. We are hearing a recording by the Tokyo String Quartet. This is the second movement of the four-movement quartet. I have played this on the program before. It employs a form known as theme and variations. The melody is presented clearly and simply at the outset of the piece, but then this tune is varied in several subsequent sections to the piece. In this case, the piece has four variations. We're hearing the third variation now, which features the viola, while the other three parts weave counterpoint around it. After this variation, the first violin will take the theme again, but the variation will be found in the harmonies that Haydn chooses to use in support of the melody. Today on Music for Life, we are going to explore entire pieces that are built around this idea of one melodic idea that is varied throughout. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will see in the lyrics of the ancient Psalms a textual idea being repeated with variation in more than one composition. And in our classroom corner, we will talk about how our brains are drawn to melodies that we are already familiar with and how our brains can vary those melodies independent of how we first heard them. this and more on today's episode of Music for Life, Music for Variations. Theme and variations is a form that is often used for a particular movement within a larger multi-movement work. In the introduction just now, we talked about this for Haydn's Emperor String Quartet, where he took his tune from the Austrian National Anthem and created several variations on that theme to serve as the second movement of the quartet. In a couple of our pre-concert talks, we saw how Beethoven used the theme and variations form as the second movement in his Kreutzer Violin Sonata, and how Prokofiev used this form as the second movement of his third piano concerto. 
But the pieces I want to explore today are standalone pieces, not movements within a larger work, where a theme is stated and then many variations are subsequently explored. This occurs throughout music history. Sometimes composers write one main theme themselves and then write a set of variations on that theme. Quite commonly, though, as we'll see, composers pay tribute to another composer by taking another's theme and writing an original set of their own variations on that theme. Before we get into our survey of standard music history, let's have our Sounds of Scripture segment where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. Now, when it comes to the Bible's music, we largely only have the text preserved. Now, it is likely that the accents above and below the Hebrew text are musical notation, and one musicologist has been said to have deciphered the notation. Nonetheless, it would be hard to discuss these melodies in any thorough way, and to discuss any ancient use of theme and variations would be basically impractical. However, even just looking at the text, we can see similar concepts being employed as exist in the theme and variations technique. One is this usage of a textual idea being repeated in more than one composition and there being slight variations between them. Another is the idea of paying tribute to another composer within a composition, much like the Western composers did by writing a theme and variations based on the theme of another composer, not out of plagiarism, but out of tribute. So looking at the book of Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are nearly identical, these two musical compositions. Psalm 14 talks about the foolishness of denying God's existence and the evil that fills the world. A side-by-side comparison of that psalm with Psalm 53 shows some unique characteristics between the two. Psalm 14 uses the name Yahweh to describe God, the word for God in the Old Testament, whereas Psalm 53 uses another name for God, Elohim, a noun that emphasizes the plurality or like a family. Verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 14 read, They were in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Compare that with Psalm 53, which says, There were they in great fear, where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. I imagine both psalms, due to the similarity of text, would have had similar music, but with these slight variations to the two, perhaps the music of one may have been variations of a theme of the other. Another handful of psalms that share identical lyrics are found in Psalm 57, Psalm 60, and Psalm 108. The last five verses of Psalm 57 are reprised in the first five verses of Psalm 108, again, with only small, slight variations in the words or the word order. Additionally, the last six verses of Psalm 60 are also found in the last six verses of Psalm 108, again, Psalm 108, making Psalm 108 almost entirely variations on a theme of both Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, or at the very least, it's a varied medley of those two psalms paired together to comprise an entirely new work there in Psalm 108. Another interesting connection between theme and variations and the biblical record is that composers of recent history will base compositions on tunes of other composers, making their theme and variations based on the main theme written by another composer, as I mentioned earlier, and as we'll see in some examples here today. One of the great composer-administrator-singer-performers of King David's day was Yeduthun, known in some passages as Ethan or Ethan. What's interesting is that three of the psalms are inscribed as to Yeduthun, Psalm 37 and Psalm 62 are listed as to Yeduthun, a psalm of David. Psalm 77 is listed as to Yeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. 
In some cases, this might mean a simple dedication, as David dedicated Psalm 72 to his son Solomon. Most likely, it means that Yaduthin was meant to perform or conduct these Psalms of David or Asaph, respectively. But I suppose there is a possibility that these works were dedicated to this composer because they employed some tune or material of his. This has been Sounds of Scripture. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Music for Variations, and in it we are exploring the commonly used form of theme and variations in the standard repertoire. As we enter the Baroque era, we come upon one of the greatest of all time variations on a theme. It is an epic keyboard work written by Johann Sebastian Bach, and it's called the Goldberg Variations. According to music historians, this piece was originally written to soothe the insomnia of a Count Kaiserling who frequently visited the city of Leipzig, where Bach was employed at the time. Bach wrote the piece for the Count's harpsichordist, a man by the name of Goldberg, to play for the troubled nobleman. The opening movement, the statement of the main idea, is called the aria, which I've played on a previous episode. The interesting thing about these variations is that they don't embellish on the melody of the aria, but rather the chord progression of the main melody. The first section is 16 bars, and then it repeats. The second section is another 16 bars of a different progression, and then a repeat. That means I could play the bass or bottom note of each chord over the recording of the first movement, and I could do the same for any other movement, and those bass notes would work every time, no matter which variation I played. Let's try a little of that, and I'll use a synthesized sound different than the piano so you can distinguish this bass line from the recording. Here's the aria. Now here's a variation I played on another episode. Listen to the bass line. It's identical to that in the aria. Finally, let's hear, without me playing on top of it, the last few of the 30 total variations. This is the legendary 1955 recording by pianist Glenn Gould, but remastered, so to speak, in 2006, so this one is in stereo. We'll hear variation 27 through to the end. Now, after the 30th variation, Bach says, play the first movement, the aria, again, so the main theme is stated in its original form one more time as a sort of reprise. So enjoy this recording.
Mm, music for Life, one of the greatest works of musical art of all time. J.S. Bach's Goldberg Variations. That was pianist Glenn Gould. Gould was an eccentric pianist, both personally and in his interpretation of music. The 1955 recording of Bach's Goldberg Variations was his first recording, and it became one of the most revered recordings of the 20th century. Throughout the latter half of the century, this classical album sold an astonishing two million copies. And really, until this recording, the Goldberg Variations was still an obscure work for the most part. So we can partly thank this unique pianist and Columbia Records for helping to get this masterpiece into the light of day. We heard the Zen Studios reperformance or remastering of that originally mono recording. That stereo remix was made in 2006. As we move now into the classical era, there are plenty of standalone theme and variations pieces to choose from. Beethoven wrote several for piano and a few for cello and piano. And so that we don't overload on solo piano music today, I want to explore one of these cello variations that Beethoven wrote. In this case, Beethoven wrote these variations on a theme of another composer. This is a tune from Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute. This is Papageno's aria, Ein Mädchen oder Weibchen. Here's a little of what it sounds like in the opera. Ein Mädchen oder Weibchen wünscht Papageno sich. Oh, so ein sanftes Täuschen, wer Seligkeit für mich, wer Seligkeit für mich, wer Seligkeit für mich. That was Andreas Schmidt singing with the London classical players and Roger Norrington, conductor, just the opening theme from the aria where the character Papageno longs for female companionship. Beethoven paid tribute to Mozart in this cello piano piece, Variations on Ein Mädchen oder Weibchen. This was most likely composed in 1798, seven years after Mozart's death. It reflected Beethoven's admiration for both Mozart and this wonderful opera. The theme is constantly displayed from several different angles, taking Papageno's well-known tune and transforming it by changing the key from major to minor in two of the variations, or happy to sad in the colloquial. The final variation is full of joy and virtuosity, and though it is cheerful, the conclusion is particularly thoughtful. We're going to hear a recording from cellist Maurice Gondron with pianist Jean Francais. Thank you. 
listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. On today's program, we are exploring the commonly used form of theme and variations in the standard repertoire, an episode I've titled Music for Variations. That was Ludwig von Beethoven's Variations on Ein Mädchen oder Weibchen, Opus 66, a theme and variations piece based on a tune from a Mozart opera. And we heard cellist Maurice Gondron with pianist Jean Francais. 
the Romantic era is full of theme and variations works, particularly as relates to piano literature, Mendelssohn's variations serieuse, Brahms' variations and fugue on a theme by Handel, and his variations on a theme by Haydn. Those are all great examples. Another great epic work based on theme and variations is a work for piano and orchestra that we discussed previously on this program, Sergei Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. Now, to hear something from the orchestral repertoire, we come to a fantastic piece by Sir Edward Elgar, one of England's most revered composers and the one famous for the pomp and circumstance so often heard at high school graduation ceremonies. Elgar was born in 1857 to a father who was an organist, piano tuner, and owner of a music store. Edward learned a little from Dad, though his younger years included being largely self-taught. Spending time in his father's music store, he became familiar with a lot of the music there and taught himself how to work the various instruments. Later, he started earning a living playing organ for local ensembles, as well as composing and conducting for various ensembles. He also started teaching violin. And at age 32, he married one of his violin students, Alice Roberts, the well-accomplished daughter of a British general. She was a passionate supporter of Edward and his composing throughout their 30 years of marriage. And one of his greatest pieces was partly inspired by her. One evening, Edward Elgar sat down and started doodling at the piano. His wife told him she liked the tune he was playing. He wasn't even aware of what he was doing, really. So to amuse her, he started improvising that tune, giving her different variations that served as a caricature of people they knew. Uh, This is how so-and-so would play this, or this variation is like our friend so-and-so. She said to him, I believe you are doing something which has never been done before. And so Elgar turned this into a full-scale orchestral work, variations based on a theme of his, his greatest large-scale work, the Enigma Variations. This piece is called An Enigma or a Mystery, largely because Elgar said there was a larger unheard theme in this work that is never stated. The identity of this phantom tune was taken with the composer to the grave, though many have ventured guesses to it being maybe the British National Anthem or a Protestant hymn or simply a major scale. Let's hear the statement of this somber theme, and then just over a minute and a half into this recording, we hear the first variation marked as C-A-E for Carolyn Alice Elgar, dedicated to his wife, one of the greatest sources of support and inspiration for the composer. We're going to hear a recording of Andrew Lytton conducting the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra.
So that was the theme and first variation of the Enigma Variations by Sir Edward Elgar. The 30-minute orchestral work is considered one of Elgar's greatest contributions to the orchestral repertoire. The first variation was to depict Elgar's wife, Carolyn Alice. The remaining variations depicted other friends of the Elgars, one friend whose voice would rise in pitch when excited, depicted in Variation 3, one with a nervous laugh, Variation 5. The most famous variation is nicknamed Nimrod, named after a close friend of the composer whose name in German meant hunter, and thus with Nimrod meaning hunter, so is named the ninth variation. The tenth variation is named after a female friend whose laugh is represented in the woodwinds, so you get the idea. Let's hear the final variation, marked E-D-U, to represent himself. Edu was the wife's nickname for him. Let's hear this boisterous movement in which you'll hear the organ toward the end. Again, we're hearing a recording of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra under the baton of Andrew Lytton.
the 14th and final variation of Sir Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations, Opus 36, performed there by Andrew Lytton, conducting the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Before we get into our 20th century example, let's have our Classroom Corner segment, where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. I have a few interesting things to go over here as relates to today's theme. We've been talking today about one melody that has been varied and transformed throughout a piece of music. In some cases, it's an original melody that we become familiar with to one degree or another by the end of the work, or it is a variation on a melody by another composer. Not only does the latter pay homage to other composers by elaborating on one of their melodies, it also plays on the age-old idea that we love music we are already familiar with, tunes we already know. And for our Classroom Corner today, let's talk about how we are drawn to music that is familiar to us. This is what Daniel Levitin writes in This Is Your Brain on Music. Inside the womb, he writes, surrounded by amniotic fluid, the fetus hears sounds. He shows that the fetus's auditory system is fully functional about 20 weeks after conception. He cites a study from Keele University in the UK that shows that a year after they are born, children recognize and prefer music they were exposed to in the womb. He goes into detail about how this study was conducted and summarizes, It appears that for music, even prenatal experience is encoded in the memory and can be accessed in the absence of language or explicit awareness of the memory. This particular chapter in his book goes on to show how much of our music preferences are set when we are young, showing the importance of strong music education in every child's life. But it also shows how all of us, like those fetuses and infants, are drawn to music we have already heard. There are other studies out there, particularly on this subject. With unfamiliar music, Levitin says, we have certain wired expectations of what we think will happen, where a chord progression will take us, for instance, and the composers who fulfill those expectations just enough without becoming overly predictable will be most successful to us. Levitin shows that, in another part of the book, that our brain's ability to even recognize whether or not a song is familiar is quite a complex process, the ability to encode certain absolute features of a piece of music. And he also shows that, most remarkably, our brains have the ability to vary a piece of music in our heads, whether we know we're doing it or not. To demonstrate this, he writes, Does the word at appear in the American National Anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner? Think about it before you read on. I did what he said. I thought about it, and I found the word in my memory banks. He writes, If you're like most people, you scanned through the song in your head, singing it to yourself at a rapid rate until you got to the phrase, What so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. Now, a number of interesting things happened here, he writes. First, you probably sang the song to yourself faster than you've ever heard it. If you were only able to play back a particular version you had stored in memory, you wouldn't be able to do this. Second, your memory is not like a tape recorder. If you want to speed up a tape recorder or video or film to make the song go faster, you have to also raise the pitch, based on the way technology worked a few years back. But in our minds, he writes, we can vary pitch and tempo independently. This has been Classroom Corner. 
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Music for Variations, and in it we have explored the commonly used form of theme and variations in the standard repertoire. This form is used to structure singular movements within larger works, like a theme and variation second movement in a four-movement Haydn string quartet, but we have explored entire standalone works which employ theme and variations form, from Bach's Goldberg variations to what we will have for dessert today, the portion of the program where I play an example from the lighter side of the classical repertoire, if not a popular or folk selection. So for our dessert today, and to represent the theme and variations form in the 20th century, we have a piece for piano and orchestra by George Gershwin. It's based on George's own hit song, I Got Rhythm. He wrote these variations for piano and orchestra in 1933 and the beginning of 1934, dedicating the work to his brother Ira. I will end the program by playing a recording of Wayne Marshall with the Albor Symphony. There is also a recording on YouTube that is preceded by an explanation from the composer, for which I will put the link in today's show notes and tweet and post on Facebook at Music for Life PCG. In that link, Gershwin explains how the work contains seven distinct parts, an introduction, the melody, four variations, and a finale. Enjoy George Gershwin's variations on I Got Rhythm.
You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.